The Church Media Podcast, episode 123, our most popular podcast episodes of 2017. Let's do it. Hey there. Welcome to the Church Media Podcast. The definitive podcast for helping you create dynamic experiences and build solid media production teams at your church. We're bringing you knowledge and insight from top media professionals from around the world. Useful, practical content in the areas of live production, design, leadership, digital communications, and more. The show notes for this episode and all archive episodes of the show are available online now at the Church Media Podcast. Podcast.com. And now, broadcasting from the ministry headquarters of 1230 Media, here's your host, church media coach Carl Barnhill. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to the Church Media Podcast. I'm Carl. Thank you so much for checking us out. We continue to have a flood of new listeners join us, so if you're one of them, welcome aboard. We really appreciate you listening and hope the content is beneficial to you as you execute the worship experiences at your church. On this week's episode of the show, we're gonna be taking a look back at some of our most listened to, most popular episodes of the show. You'll hear snippets of interviews with Christian music artist Jason Roy and Joe Smallbone, ministry coach Carl Carty, filmmakers Kevin and Sam Sorbo and Dallas Jenkins, and more. It's all on the way. But first, I want to give you a quick look at what's coming for us on the podcast in 2018. Check this out. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you thank you. You've made our podcast one of the fastest growing, most listened to church production podcasts in the nation. We are ranked in the top seven church media podcasts on iTunes, named by Capterra Church Management as one of the top 10 church tech podcasts of the year and are growing like crazy. So we thank you for that. We truly want to provide you with great information to help you create dynamic, engaging worship experiences at your church every week. We already have several guests in the can for 2018, including Jay Kandra from Saddleback, uh, Cade Young from Collaborate Worship, Kyle Cutter from Life Church, the CEO of Precept Ministries International, David Arthur, and more. It's all on the way in 2018, and we are so excited to be releasing new shows to you each week. Feel free to give us any feedback about the show. Contact us on our website at thechurchmediapodcast.com today to share the good, the bad, the ugly. We want to hear from you. Find us at thechurchmediapodcast.com today. Welcome back. It's been an exciting year for our podcast. We've seen some massive growth in our listener base over 2017. So again, thank you so much for listening. In episode number 77 of the podcast, I had the opportunity to interview two lead singers of Christian rock bands, Building 429's Jason Roy and for King and Country's Joel Smallbone. The reason we talk to musicians like these guys is because they are fully invested in creating incredible worship experiences through their concerts and live events. I want us to learn from anyone we can that creates memorable experiences for people. And these guys are well known for their sellout shows that take their audience on a journey. So first up, Jason Roy from Building 429. Check out a little snippet of our chat. Now, our ministry serves church media staff and volunteers, guys who 
uh, create experiences at their churches week in and week out. Now, one of the reasons we have Christian music artists on like you is uh, to give us insight into kind of what goes into creating an experience. In your case, it's concerts and live events. Tell me about your involvement in creating and forming your concert experience for a tour. How does the process start? Who's involved? Kind of walk me through that. Right, right. Well, um, the first thing that I would say is that it starts with um, the, the the basic elements. You know, it starts with the songs uh, first and foremost. And and really what we do is we take, we say, okay, what do we feel like God is saying? You know, like what, what do we feel like God wants us to say on this tour? And for us, what we felt like on our last tour that we God wanted us to instill in people was that we were we were unashamed of the gospel and why why would we say that well because we believe that there's hope in the gospel and we believe that the world is is in a hopeless state looking for hope but then then you dig it a little bit further and you go okay well if that's what we believe then then we need to go back to the basic fundamentals of our faith why do we believe that the word of God is true why do we believe that Jesus is who he says he was and we kind of created this whole um, this whole moment uh, when we started talking about how do we create a moment in the show where we reinforce and bolster people's faith and then encourage them to go out and take that great courage that they have just gained by hearing uh, all these facts and all this, all this, all these realities about uh, the gospel. Um, and then how do, how do we inspire people to go out and share their faith in the same way that we ourselves have experienced sharing our faith. And so, um, so that's really where it starts for us. Uh, with that in mind, then I go to, a, and it, that all starts with me. Uh, I'm kind of the guy who's the idea guy in Building 429. And then I'll go in and sit down in a production meeting, and I'll map out all of my crazy ideas. And there's there's nothing that, that that is wrong. There is no idea that's too big or too small. You know, we act like we're you 2 for the first, you know, <laughs> the first uh, hour or so of the meeting. And then we start, we bring my production guy in. We say, hey, what do you think we can pull off with this, this, these constraints on our budget from a production standpoint, be it lighting, be it audio? And then we start kind of walking through what the production package is going to look like. You have to think about truck pack. You have to think about loading it in and loading it out every night. And then you have to start thinking about now, how do we craft an event that's you know an hour and a half, two hours long, maybe sometimes two and a half hours long, that's enjoyable, that has ebbs and flows, and, uh, and it gets to a climax of a, of a point where you're going to give them some great uh, uh, activation point, some great moment where they can actually take what they've learned or what they've heard and run with it out the door as they go back into uh, their worlds. And, and really that looks like sitting in probably, I don't know, six meetings. It looks like uh, those meetings are probably four hours each, and and it looks like countless uh, phone calls late into the night with management, and uh, and then it, you just kind of tweak away on it until you get the tour rehearsals. Tour rehearsals, everything gets loaded in, everything gets set up, and I come in without a band, and I start running, uh, playing the music back and letting my lighting guy show me how he thinks he can make the moments that I had in my head work, uh, special effects, all that kind of stuff. We spend a week in tour rehearsals, then we take two days off and go play the first one and the tweaking continues from there uh on this last tour we played uh 24 shows honestly the show was not perfect until show number probably 15 or 16 and even then i still wanted to tweak even more which drives my crew crazy <laughs> but it's always a moving target and and really 
if I'm the mouthpiece, then everything gets wrapped around me. And, uh, and, and every single night that I come off the stage, I have a drummer and a band who I ask, what could I do better? And they, they tell me, and I do the same with them. And every single night that I come off the stage, my, my production crew, the same thing. Uh, and you know, those, that's the way that we approach it. Now you mentioned your production guy and how the show is so tight. Tell me your relationship with him and how did that, that start? How'd you get to know him and what, what are the con- kind of conversations and relationship that you guys have? Yeah. Well, my production guy's name is Justin Hugis. Uh, he's a gifted, gifted young man. He, he, he came into our system as a, as an intern, uh, four years ago and he just came out of college and was looking for something to do in the summer and learn to learn what, what, what we do. And he came out and he, uh, he kind of, uh, did guitar changes and stuff like that. And then we realized he was a, uh, an engineer and he jumped on the monitor console and all of a sudden my in-ear monitors started sounding amazing. And then time passed and our front of house engineer left and we gave him, or he, he ran sound for the openers on our tours. And I remember going out and listening to him going, wow, this kid's good, you know? And, and then when our front of house engineer left, we just slid him out there and he, uh, he began kind of honing his craft up front, which was a completely different thing. I mean, he went from playing from being the front of house engineer, uh, in 600 seat rooms to then playing 10 to 15,000 seat arenas, uh, on the last three tours that we did. And he is now pretty much mixed in every possible venue that there is to mix. And, and, uh, and he's got an eye for production. And my, my conversations with him every night are, what do you need out of me more vocally? Um, what 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 can I do to change the the flow of the show? What about this pad that the, he and I are over every detail of the show and we're and we're talking about it constantly and uh, it's it's a constant form of communication. There are times when I come off stage and I go, man, there was this low frequency hum for about thirty seconds in the middle of the intro of this song, and he's like, yeah, 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 I missed. I'm sorry. You know, like the, the, we have a cocktail kit. You know, the cocktail kit was too close to the subs, and I accidentally had the microphones on. Like, okay, well, let's let's not let's not let that happen again. And, but then there's times when he comes to me, he's like, "Man, hey, when you do the when you play the drums, dude, you cannot leave your microphone pointed right at the snare drum." <laughs> you know, so so it's a constant communication, and and he's always coming to me saying, "You know, this song really worked well, but I think it would work better if we moved it to another location in the set." And I think that. The way that you worded this phrase, if you would word it like this, I think it would connect with people's hearts a little bit better. So it's it's an all hands on deck, and there is no pride uh, when we start talking about how to make things better for the people who come to our concerts. And that's the way it should be, uh, not only at, at a at a Building 429 show, but it was the way it was at my church as well. We we had very blatantly open and honest conversations, not calling anybody out and telling them to do anything wrong, but saying, "Hey, you can do this better." And, uh, and I think that's what makes the team great. Hey, guys, I have Joel Smallbone on the line with me. Joel is the writer, producer, and frontman for the Grammy Award-winning group for King and Country. Him and his brother Luke have seen great success with the band, selling over 1 million albums, seen 100 million streams of their music, and have headlined tours across the country. With their new project, they dive into the world of filmmaking with the film priceless joel welcome man thank you so much for being here g'day carl thanks for having me i really appreciate it man Man, i love the australian accent um i could just listen to you for for days (laughs) you know it's so funny it's all about frame of reference because 
Tell if you were to go over to Australia, everyone would be like, "Mate, I love your accent." <laughs> I know we're we're, we're mixing uh, Southern with Australian in this interview, so I think we're going to get some good good stuff. Yeah, I agree. Right. <laughs> um, now, you guys formed the band for King & Country a few years ago. I used to chat with your sister uh, quite often when I was in Christian radio back in the day. And uh, for those who don't mm-hmm. know, uh, Joel and Luke are the younger brothers of Rebecca St. James, a recording artist. Uh, and your dad's a producer, right? It's a big family affair, right? Yeah, dad, that's sort of more, on, it's always been more on the business side of right. things. He's, uh, he managed Rebecca during her time as an artist and, and uh, manages us as well. Got you. Um, all right, so I, I want to dive into this uh, this movie, Priceless. This started with your song, right? Tell me about the, the Priceless movement. Well, actually, interestingly enough, Carl, it, it started... Uh, I'll, I'll go back to the beginning and kind of walk you through the, the process. So about, what, was five years ago... Um, Luke and I formed uh, this group for King Country, and uh, simultaneously to that, uh, Luke had just gotten married, and I had I, I met my now wife Mariah at his wedding. It was a setup, and and uh, she was brought as a plus one. She was kind of a wedding crasher of sorts, if you will, and uh, and it worked. And so simultaneously, we started traveling as a band, and this this idea of relationships and and love commitment. Romance was kind of very keen on our hearts and minds. And so we shared, probably for about 30, 40 seconds on stage, we felt moved to share just a real simple message of uh, charging us as men to be serious in how we love and celebrating a woman's worth. And one of the physical, tangible things we did during that time was we, uh, and still today we do, we brought over a whole bunch of Australian coins and we framed them and we made necklaces out of them. And we called it the priceless necklace. And uh, we've, to date, I think we've seen about 300,000 men and women, boys and girls in this country, grab one of these necklaces or one of the bracelets um, uh, to really show that they're supportive of this mission. And it, uh, it was kind of, everyone was exciting, obviously, to see the response, but it was almost alarming how it felt like our generation was kind of starving for this affirmation. So about, I don't know, two and a half years ago, give or take, we went to our brother Ben uh, in the midst of all this, who's a filmmaker, and we said, look, uh, uh, we, we, it seems as though there's a, there's a story that needs to be told here. Um, what about taking this message to the silver screen? And I don't think we knew what we were asking at the time, but literally from that moment, Carl, from the inception of story to me, I was one of, I'm one of the actors in the film, Luke's one of the producers, and now to it being in theaters nationwide, we've kind of taken, uh, we've seen it from beginning, middle to end, and the song, Priceless, actually was kind of, was written in the middle of the process. So the film, the movement came first, then the film, and then actually, uh, believe it or not, then the song came, which is a bit backwards for musicians, you know. I'm all about creating a dynamic volunteer culture within your media production team. This is the team that executes Sunday. So to pour into them and create a culture where they enjoy serving is a must. In episode number 79 of the podcast, I talked with Jared Hogue, who served on staff at Church on the Move, about this very topic. Check this out. 
Yeah, Carl, thanks so much for having me back. Uh, loved loved our conversation before about the Creating a Rockin' Internship. And, uh, man, I, I share the same passion. I, to me, life, whether you work in a ministry context or not, it's all about people. Whether you're coding websites or uh, you're a chemical engineer, stay-at-home mom, you, you name it, life is all about people. And so in the, in the ministry context and when it comes to volunteers, that's what it's all about. And um, I have had the pleasure when I was the assistant varsity director, we talked about this a little bit, um, which was our young adult ministry in the, in the last episode, um, I, I oversaw our volunteer team there. I had some, some experience previously with some volunteer teams and then really got to experience it in, in running some rooms, uh, like I said, our, our South Campus doing some recruiting out there, building the 5th and 6th grade team out there, and then coming to run the 5th and 6th grade team at the Central Campus, taking over elementary, then the Central Campus, and then the global scale. And uh, I think all in all, our three campuses in the children's ministry had somewhere in the vein of about 865 volunteers. Um, I don't say that to brag on myself. I did not recruit all of them. Um, in fact, the majority of them I did not recruit. Uh, we've, we've had at Church on the Move, we've had a high premium on children and youth ministry for a very long time uh, under our leadership, Pastor Willie George. And, um, you know, I in- inherited some really great things. Uh, but one thing that, that uh, we did notice that needed to be fixed is that when we were, when we were very program heavy at the, at, in, in the children's ministry, a lot of our volunteers uh, were just kind of there holding the door, making sure no kids escaped, um, and crowd control. And make no mistake about it, man, we had some amazing volunteers. But for me personally, that's not really something that I want to devote my life to, is just showing up and holding a door and making sure, and just basically being a disciplinarian. Um, and I don't think most high-capacity people want to devote their lives to that. Uh, we touched on this just a little bit in the last episode, but if you want to attract high-capacity people, you've got to give them a high-capacity role. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the steps that we took is we began to shift and place a high premium on our volunteers. And so every week in our team meeting, we had a statement. There were two things that we would say every week when it came to our volunteers. The first one is volunteers are our gold. They are our gold, and so we need to treat them as such. We need to make sure that we are treating our volunteers like they are the most important thing that we do. And then uh, a statement we stole from Pastor Chris Hodges from Church of the Highlands is, we don't have a job to do, we have a team to build. And so it's not, not about how creative we can be, it's not about how uh, funny we can be or entertaining we can be, it's all about people. And so how are, we, how are we going to leverage people? How are we going to pour into people? And so I'm sure we'll jump in with some more questions on that, but that was one of the biggest shifts we made every Monday morning in our, our, our team meeting as a staff. Volunteers are our goal, and we'd share stories about volunteers. Who's coming on the team? Who's leaving the team? Why are they leaving the team? Are we, are we uh, really pushing on that and making sure they know that if they're leaving our team, that's a big deal. We do not want them to leave. Um, and, and, and things like that. I know I'm kind of probably jumping ahead, but uh, those are just a couple little things we did out the gate to start shifting the culture in Kids on the Move. I've known of Carl Carty for several years. We've crossed paths several times in our careers. He is a songwriter, worship leader, and ministry coach. We did two episodes of the show with Carl, episodes 86 and 87. 
He brought some incredible content to our time together. Here's a little taste. I know some leaders in the uh, tech space, especially some in the worship space, may say that pastoring is not their their gift or that they're shy or that they're not a, a people person. Uh, what would you say to to someone like that, to, to a leader like that, uh, as it relates to being a pastor? Yeah, um, you know, I, I understand that. And I, I feel that, you know, like, I, I am um, by nature kind of, kind of an introvert in the sense of I don't draw strength from being uh, like in crowds of people. I draw strength from being by myself, you know what I mean? Or, uh, or, or being, you know, just at home with my family. But, you know, just speaking for myself, I've been convicted that I, I, I really don't have the option. Um, my calling doesn't afford me the option to say that I'm not a people person because I am in a 100% people business. And so, and I 100% people calling, you know, um, you know, I, I noticed that, you know, you know, even in the gospels, Jesus was prone to get away by himself. And then, you know, the, the crowds would press in and there was a lot, there was a lot of crowds, but his, his life was a balance of being very public and loving people and touching people and engaging people. And then contrasted by getting away, finding a space, you know, um, refueling and recharging, you know? And so for me, if someone says, well, you know, I'm, I'm just a tech guy. Um, I'm just a, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not gifted as a pastor. That, that, that is fine. And that can be true about a person, but I don't think it can be an excuse for being aloof. I don't think it could be a way to justify not engaging people. I think we just have to find a better way forward to honor what we need and where we draw our strength while at the same time realizing that you're never going to lead somebody any further than you care for them or love them. You're never going to lead somebody past the point uh, of how much you care for them or love them. And uh, if people feel disconnected uh, to you relationally, especially over a long-term period, you know, if, if you become known as kind of aloof or hard to approach or, or uh, you bark at people uh, or, and you, and then you, you couch all that stuff in like, Oh, I'm just too, uh, I'm, I'm an artist or, you know, I'm a tech guy. I just, I like, I don't like people. You really have to remember that those things are realities, but they can't justify uh, behavior that doesn't engage people. And, and that's, a, you know, that's just a muscle that you have to flex. You have to learn how to do that. I've, I've tried to learn, you know, through this process of, of saying yes to Jesus call in my life that um, it's, it's sacrificial. And, uh, and sometimes you have to sacrifice um, the parts of you that, you know, are, are really not worth hanging around or hanging on to. You know, I, I, found, I found that people are motivated so much more uh, by kindness, by opportunity, by somebody just being willing to just welcome them in um, much more than they are, like, you know, trying to build this exterior kind of buffer between you and other people. It's, it's really hard. It ends up being super hard to maintain that. Yeah. For our 100th episode of the show, I invited husband and wife team Kevin and Sam Sorbo. You know, Kevin is Hercules and from his roles in God's Not Dead and other TV and film projects. His wife, Sam, is an author and screenwriter. She wrote the screenplay for the movie Let There Be Light, which opened in theaters a few months back. 
Movies are great to take your volunteer team to go see and talk about together. It's a community builder. I had a great time chatting with Kevin and Sam about the movie and about a few other random topics. I was watching this uh, this interview with uh, Bill Nye uh, and then a, a SNL sketch. I've been struck by both of those those two things just yesterday, just scrolling through Facebook. And on the Bill Nye clip, he's talking about if, if someone disagrees with me, I'm okay with putting them in jail. Uh, and then yeah. the SNL clip was a, this dog talking like a like a conservative, and they wanted to shoot the dog. Okay, so I got it right. So yes. if I disagree with you, you're going to put me in jail, and you you can shoot me like that. That is if if I completely just disagree with you, Carl. The the, the problem is that what you're saying is so absolutely true, but it, it seems ridiculous. It seems like it's a joke, yeah. and it's not a joke. Right. When um, when um, the late night comedian uh, Colbert, right. okay, just attacked President Trump and right. got enormous uh, enormous coverage. I don't, I'm, and most of it, I would say, positive. Even though there, it was critical, it, it actually was sort of positive coverage, and said really vulgar things mm-hmm. about the president. Yeah. But the the commentary that I was watching were people sort of saying, well, he shouldn't say that, and what's he thinking, and it's a bad thing that he said that. That was some of the commentary. But nobody really pinpointed what the, what the actual sort of modus underneath that was. And the modus is this. To a leftist, if you, if you disagree with them, because they do not adhere to Judeo-Christian morality, if you disagree with them, you are less than human. You are subhuman. Therefore, your life has no meaning, because to them, life only has meaning if it serves, for instance, the state. Right. So to, to Colbert, Trump is less than a dog because he'd be willing to shoot Trump, whereas he wouldn't necessarily be willing to shoot a dog. Right. And, and that's the difference that, as Christians, we fail to sort of comprehend because we value life. Right. But what's amazing in this country, which was founded on Judeo-Christian principles by Christian men, is that we've got this inherited moral capitalism. So to an average person, they say, oh, yes, no, uh, you know, life is valuable and slavery is bad. But they cannot explain why unless they've gone to church and studied the Bible or the New Testament. They can't explain why life, life is, has meaning. Life is precious. And so abortion's okay, even though they really do believe that life is valuable and you shouldn't just kill people. Because they've they've bought into the lie that abortion isn't actually killing. Right. So that's how they sort of, they can marry that. And I say to them, why do we have stop signs? Think about it. A stop sign is a moral judgment. And the moral judgment that the stop sign makes is life is valuable. All of our laws are moral, are morally uh, uh they're, they're moral statements, let me put it that way. Yeah. But people think, no, we can separate out our religion from our politics, and they're wrong. That's true. And that's what's getting us into trouble now. Yep. Exactly. Well, I, I so appreciate you guys coming up, uh, coming out with just great. One, you're vocal, and I appreciate that. And another, you you guys create content that we want to see. And so, I'd love to kind of get into talking about your new movie, Let There Be Light. Now, tell tell me the story here. How did this project come your way? You you guys wrote this with Dan Gordon, right? Yeah, I 
uh, the idea struck me, as, as uh, sometimes ideas do, uh, and we, we know where that comes from. And um, I called Dan and I asked him if he'd consider writing a screenplay with me, to which he said no. He's a really accomplished screenplay writer, which is something I'm not. <laughs> he doesn't really need me. And he t- we went to lunch and I told him the idea, and he loved the idea so much he said I'm in. And then strangely, as these things never happen this way, about two weeks later, Sean Hannity called my husband and said, hey, I want to get into movie production. I think I want to work with you. Do you have a project we could work on? <laughs> yep. Kevin said, yes, I do. Yeah. So, Kevin, how <laughs> did that... So, uh, literally two years later, we have a movie. I mean, it's really quite a- yeah. astonishing. So, Kevin, walk me through that convo with uh, with Sean Hannity. How'd that work out? He executive well, you know, produced yeah. the film. And unfortunately, that, you know, Fox is one of the few outlets that actually lets you come on and talk about God-based type of movies. You know, <laughs> For now. Talk about movies that have a good message and strong message. So I've been on Fox many times, as Sam has been. Um, it's been a great outlet for us to get out there and promote things from, you know, our books to our... Uh, Movies, the TV shows, whatever it may be, and um, you know we we're friends. You know I've golfed with the guy and hung out with him, and uh, he called me up and he said, "Look, I want to do this. I've seen the success of your movies, and I want to work with you." And um, when I mentioned to Sam, you know, she just said, like she said, "That's our movie." So we flew out there with Dan Gordon. Dan's a great pitchman, and he 30 minutes. Dan talked. We were in Sean's radio office building, and Sean just said, "I'm in." You know, just like that. And uh, to have this movie put together that quickly when most movies take anywhere from three to five years to go from idea to, to the movie screen and have this done in, in less, you know, a little more than a year is uh, nothing short of a miracle in itself. And, it, you know, we're supposed to get this movie out there. So we're very excited. We're very excited for everything pieced together. I, I got to direct it. Uh, uh, Sam, you know, wrote a great script along with Dan, and uh, we had a great team down there. And you know, everybody everybody put input in this. It was just it was a great team effort as it should be. That's the way it has to be in a movie set. And I think you have to let everybody that's, you know, whatever their job may be, let them do their job. I have an idea, but I'm also going to listen to what people have to say because they know what they're doing in their different departments better than I do. I also had the opportunity to chat with another filmmaker, Dallas Jenkins, the next week. Dallas directed the film The Resurrection of Gavin Stone and served on staff in a major media leadership role at Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Here's what he had to say. Now tell me uh, about what it's like on staff there. You're talking to a lot of church media directors here on our blog and podcast. What's the daily grind like for you? You're in a little bit different role, but walk walk me through that. What's the weekly uh, grind look like for you? Well, for the first few years that I was here, I was not making a movie. I mean, I was helping with our weekend production, uh, helping with videos. Um, I mean, I, I, I actually at about the two and a half year point, I came to them and I said, I can't do this anymore. I wanted to help out. I was willing to do this stuff as in kind of as part of my job, um, which I had done this that kind of stuff before, but I, I was able to bring, I think, some of my storytelling and cinematic perspective to to harvest, but um, I, it was it was so all consuming that I, I didn't have time to make movies, and, and the script we were working on wasn't um, wasn't coming together, and so ultimately I started making short films while we were developing other things, and I made this short film, The Ride, um, for our church's Christmas Eve service. And at that point, that's when my full time job, I would say at least maybe ninety percent of my job became making or preparing movies. And the other stuff started to become more part-time, and so I still consult on videos. So, for example, 
since I've been here, we've probably made about 50 what's called God at Work videos, which is testimonial videos about people in our church whose lives have changed. And so those are really important to our worship service and to uh, our messaging. And so I still consult on those. We have a huge Good Friday service every year, and so I'm a big part of that, and I have made short films for that as well. So the Daily Grind now, of course, I'm, you know, promoting our first movie. Um, there's a couple of scripts that are being written that I'm working on or, or, or consulting on as well. Um, I still consult on some of the projects that our church does. Um, so it's, it's right now, I, you know, the question is easy. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm crazily busy, uh, you know, doing social media and interviews and, uh, you know, relationships with pastors, but working, you know, I'm sitting talking to you in, in a church office right now, um, as part of a church that is tr- about to get a message about church, um, to the world. And, uh, and it's kind of a, kind of a quirky weird situation to be in where i'm i'm like i never thought that i'd you know be at the the high point of my filmmaking career while sitting in a true talk yeah i bet all right so let's talk about uh the resurrection of gavin stone uh tell me how this movie uh came to you how how did it come about and how did you get involved so after the short film was uh made the ride it was called the ride i did it for our church's christmas eve service and um that was where it was going to end. And, uh, that, you know, the, the point of it was to bless our church with a, with a, with a great story, and I think we did that. Um, long story short, it got in the hands of Jason Blum, who's one of the most prominent producers in Hollywood and is known primarily for horror films. He's done Paranormal Activity and, you know, Insidious and Sinister. And um, he also did the movie Whiplash, which won a couple of Academy Awards that I really loved. So he loved this short film. And he was interested in dipping his toe into the faith-based waters. He was kind of intrigued by it. Um, And so he said, you know, he called me and he just said, I cried, I was moved, whatever you want to do, you know, in this faith space, I want to be a part of it, let's work together. And he connected with WWE and, yes, the the wrestling company, um, who were also, you know, they make movies as well, and they were also interested in the faith-based market um, and interested in working with Blumhouse. And so... As we were talking about getting together and making something, I came across this script for The Resurrection of Gavin Stone because when I heard the idea, I immediately loved it. The notion of a former child actor who's washed up and in trouble getting sentenced to 200 hours of community service at a local church and pretending to be a Christian so that he can play the part of Jesus in their passion play and work off his hours that way. I immediately saw the humor. I immediately saw the emotional and spiritual gut punch that would come from him learning about Jesus by playing the part and from him being part of a church community. So I read the script and liked it a lot, and I did a rewrite to kind of make it a little bit more my own as well. They loved the script. It was an explicitly pro-church movie, but they thought this would be a good one to start with. And so a poor film company, a wrestling company, and a church in Elgin, Illinois, uh, got together and made this movie. And they were able to provide resources, twice the budget that we would have put up ourselves, um, obviously being connected with a you know, Hollywood companies that have a lot of clout and relationships helped us as well. And then we shot the movie at our church. I mean, we provided the the, the kind of the Midwest church feel and provided me as the director and some volunteers and some people who work at our church. And so it was really a great combination, um, a certainly eyebrow-raising combination, but it's paid off significantly both for um, the quality of the movie but also for getting the message out to a wider audience. In episodes 104 and 105 of the show, 
My friend and a member of our team, Jonathan Drake, stopped by. We chatted all about how to produce killer video announcements at your church. Here's a little of that convo. All right, I want to dive in uh, today to, to chatting about shooting video announcements. Now, one reason we're talking about this today is because um, uh, you run your own company, but you're also joining us uh, on our 1230 team as we're now offering uh, video announcements to churches around the world. So you've shot hundreds of talent-based announcements over the years. So why don't you give us a taste of what we're up to, kind of walk us through what we're going to launch, and, and we're launching at 1230. We're providing now. Well, it's very exciting to be uh, teaming up with you guys um, because you and I, we met, um, it was funny, we, we really had never met in person until not too long ago, um, but we, we did a lot of work together sort of not knowing each other. I would be shooting yeah. the announcements uh, at our church and then kind of rough-cutting that footage and sending it to you. And I remember sitting in church one week, because we used to have one of our guys that was uh, on staff at church editing the announcements, and he did a great job. Um, But I remember one of the first weeks after I was told that you were coming on board at Chapel Hill to to do all the motion graphics work for us, and I remember sitting in the church and just being blown away. And if anybody listening has not seen any of Carl's stuff, like, you need to just check it out uh, because it, it really is, man. I'm not just saying this because I'm trying to give you a big head or anything, but, like, I really was so impressed, and the quality of what you were producing has just continued to get better and better. And so I'm super excited about us being able to team up on this together because I've shot a lot of church announcements. I've seen a lot of really bad church announcements, mm-hmm. and probably I could even throw myself into that category when I first got you know started because – I've shot a lot of terrible church announcements, so um, I think it's a I think it's a very needed thing in the church world. I think a lot of churches, you know, that I've visited over the years that don't do video church announcements, you know, typically they'll have someone get up and ramble on for fifteen or twenty minutes, and some people do it really well. But honestly, I think it can be such a distraction um, in worship sometimes. And I think that churches, you know, more and more just trying to. They're trying to have a very, you know, we're, we're creating an atmosphere, not just for people that already know Jesus, but for people that may have never met and have a relationship with Him. I think that every part in a worship service experience can really be very important, and, and you can lose somebody very quickly. And so I think church announcements, video-based church announcements, are a much-needed thing. And I think uh, what we're doing um, is is just going to be a quality. Um, there are some other companies out there that are doing very simplified kind of announcements, but I think that what we're doing is going to be just a little bit different. Yeah. So along those lines, what do you think that we offer that other services like this uh, don't necessarily provide? Well, we are, I think, um, advertising or basing ourselves as a premium uh, church announcement package. Um, What what that means is um, every week we are shooting uh, our own on-camera talent for any church that would sign up for the service. So we've got professionals that are, you know, most of them are actually in a acting uh, capacity outside of, if that's not what they do full-time, that is a big part of who they are. Um, One of one of the guys that is going to be uh, one of our on-camera talents is one of my best friends, and he's been in 
nationwide uh, Pepsi commercials he's been in, movies that you absolutely would know the names of, TV shows, commercials. So he has a very uh, big, long list of portfolio that, um, you know, just, just shows the quality of the people that we're going to be using. Um, and then in addition to that, um, where, you know, Carl is using his expertise in the motion graphics world to really bring a full package together that I, I, I just don't think anybody else is doing it. And I'm not saying that to, to be showboating or anything like that. I think that it's just God's brought the right people together that have the talent to produce something that I think is going to be very impactful for any and every church um, that would, you know, sign up to be a part of this. I occasionally have folks over to our studio live to chat about various topics. Columbia International University professor David Olshine agreed to swing by our studio in a thunderstorm, and we chatted about how to take care of yourself. Soul care with David Olshine. Check out this clip. If you think about the word soul and you wonder what that is, or someone's wondering what that is, it's the deepest part of you. Uh, So there's more to us than just body. There's more to us than just spirit. Uh, Jesus talks about what good it would be if you gain the whole world but lose your soul. Or Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He goes on to it. He restores our soul. And so uh, soul care is about taking care of me, taking care of how I develop rhythms and a cadence to life, a pattern. So for example, like I was thinking on the way over here, here's what my day has been like, and this will sort of unpack where I'm going. Uh, I woke up this morning, you know, and the first thing I did is I had a time of prayer. Then I had a time with my family, my wife and my, my son. Then I spent some time with my friend Keith, who's my kind of a soul brother and accountability friend. And we spent about two hours together sharing deep stuff, laughing, um, just, you know, processing future and vision. Then I went to exercise. I went to the gym and I swam. That was thunder, by the way, again. Went went to swim. Um, before we did all that, by the way, in between that, I had a good breakfast, solid breakfast, not Twinkies, but I am me, but uh, had a good oatmeal. So it filled me up. After the exercise, came back, had another fairly healthy lunch. Then I did one of the most spiritual things. I took a 10-minute nap. Very spiritual. Naps are very spiritual, spiritual. and people laugh about that, but it's true. And then after that, uh, I spent some time with my wife again, and then I came here to do outflow ministry. This is, you know, you can't just be taken. You know, people think, you know, soul is just taking care of yourself all the time, just intake, intake, intake. Well, it's got to be some outflow. So hopefully this podcast will be some outflow. It'll help somebody. And so, and then I meet with your boy, Trevor Miller afterwards to do a little mentoring there. And, and that's mutual. So he's going to throw some stuff at me. That's going to help me. And I'm going to throw some. So developing this rhythm and this cadence and this, this, this something that's, that's, I had a friend years ago say, um, I would just, I just want to burn out for Jesus, you know? And I'm like, yeah, you will. And most people say that they stop doing ministry. Yep. It kills them. And so people have the inability to not be sustainable, and they don't know the word no. Yeah. And struggle saying it to people. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I want to kind of work through this content that you shared. So the first piece of it is this idea of soul warnings or personal issues 
um, that are, are warning signs of bad soul care. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's walk through those. Walk me through those. Okay, so my son, whenever we dri- drive somewhere, he'll see a sign that'll say, uh, it'll ha- have a picture of the deer, and he'll go, deer! And I'm like, where, where, where? And it's like, there's no deer. But until one day, there was a deer, it was dead. And it was right by the sign. <laughs> so every warning sign that you see on a road, you know, is there for the driver's attention. Right. So as I started to explore why Christian leaders were burning out, why some of the best of the best of the best weren't lasting, while some of them were falling off the pedestal. Can I stop you there? And where did you start to see this? And of course, don't name names, but did you start to see? And that is something I've seen. I mean, every decade, every decade. I mean, when I was 25, I started seeing people fall off the platform and and senior pastors resigning because of burnout and adultery and and workaholism. So I've seen it yeah. every day. It's not like it's it's not like it happens every now and then. That was thunder again. Right. It happens every year. Yeah. So and true. sometimes it happens every month. So one of the signs, one of the signs that everyone talks about is uh, decreased prayer life, no mm-hmm. interest in scripture lack of zeal, lack of passion for evangelism, all that stuff is true. Right. But I've identified four that I call under the radar. Okay. Here's the first one, unresolved hurt. If you're in ministry, if you're in, even in business, someone's going to hurt your feelings. You know, someone's going to ignore you. You're going to look for someone's attention. They're not going to give it. And what happens is this unresolved hurt uh, leads to a swelling of irritation. You know, and if you're if you work with people, you're just going to get irritated with people, and so then what happens is you distance yourself from that person. Then you probably alienate yourself. You just create big distance from them. So whether you're a paid youth worker or volunteer, if you camp out in the land of unresolved hurt long enough, you're going to get broken and angry, and you're going to get discontented. And before you know it, your soul is bruised and battered and wounded and hurt. Mm. And I see that that is usually the, one of the first things under the radar that leads to a damaged soul. All right, the second one, go on. Mm-hmm. Second one is, is ongoing cynicism. Ongoing cynicism. So a guy named Andrew Byers wrote a book called Faith Without Illusions. And he quotes cynicism as this, I think it's a brilliant quote. It's got to be unpacked. We'll unpack it in a second. He says, cynicism is embittered disposition of distrust born out of painful disillusionment. Let me say it again. It's embittered disposition of distrust born out of painful disillusionment. So buyers saying this, what comes first, chicken or the egg, what comes first is disillusionment. Disillusionment that causes pain. So the, uh, so the question is, honestly, what painful disillusionment in a person's life created has created distrust. So it could be someone saying, well, my spouse left me, or a friend betrayed me, or my pastor embarrassed me in front of the staff members. And he, he buyers goes on to say this, to be cynical is to be spiritually ill, but it's not terminal. Mm. So first you, you get this painful hurt that you won't let go of. Then you've got this cynicism, and it's easy to get cynical. And then you'd start to know your soul's in trouble. Then the third one, and this is a sliding scale. This almost always happens next, entitlement. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't people know what I'm good at? How come, how come that person 
has all the podcasts? How come he gets all the speaking engagements? Why has that person got, you know, 12,000 members? How come it's or them my, and not me? Or on myself. The Sunday can't happen if I'm not there. Oh, that's the opposite. That yeah. Right. This thing cannot be pulled off, you know. And But I, I would find that most of us get into what Andy Stanley calls the comparison trap. Right. And that's a no-win because yeah. someone is always going to be better than me, mm -hmm. and someone's always going to do worse than me. So that doesn't win. So those are the those are the those are the three. Um, one of the other factors that I think goes into it is the example is the Israelites. They're in the wilderness and they're complaining and they're saying, "Yeah, Lord, give us meat to eat. Lord, you didn't feed us, and don't you know we're the chosen people? And you're going to let us die out here." And so I think what we have to do is we have to watch for the signs. We have to watch and pay attention uh, to what's going on. And then the last one is feelings of burnout. Um, and, and the burnout factor is extra fatigue, lack of motivation. I don't really care anymore about this. Or the people who say, I'm going to reach this amount of people and this is going to drive me. And it just drives them, drives them, drives them to the point that their time with God is falling apart. But they can't admit that. And their time with their spouse if they're married is not quality anymore. So the feelings of breath. So those four factors are kind of under the radar. And I think the simple thing to do is watch for the signs. And then when you see, see any of those things happening, take action. Cry about it. Go to therapists. Uh, take a long vacation. I've seen so many people burn out. And I asked the leaders, what did you do to protect this person? Did you give them a sabbatical? Oh, no, we didn't. What did you do to protect them? And I think for, for some of us who are on platform kind of things, there's an addiction to praise. There's an addiction to applause. Yeah. And some of us, once you get it, you love it. It's insatiable. It's like, you know, Josh McDowell says about sex, the more you get, the more you want. Mm -hmm. Praise does the same things to young leaders. Once they get it, wow, they just, they need it. Last clip from Memory Lane is from by far one of our most popular episodes, How to Stop Being a One-Man Show with Justin Firesheets from Church of the Highlands. Justin talked about our shared passion, that pastoring your people should be your first priority when it comes to your team. He discusses some ways you can prevent being a one-man show at your church and raise up leaders that will help you accomplish more ministry. Here's a snippet of our chat. Now, one thing that we both have a big passion for is leading people and leading teams, that it goes beyond pushing the button, moving the fader, uh, that sort of thing. So um, you, you, tell me about your passion for leading and developing teams. I, I really want to dive into to that topic and how you, you get yourself out of being a one-man band. So many of us yeah. struggle with that. Sure. It, it, for, you know, it's, it's kind of an ironic place that I'm in now because until I got, honestly, so I've been here, you know, over eight years, it probably took me halfway through that journey to really embrace the idea that, you know, this really is a people first business. Um, I have never been naturally a relational person like that. I'm very process and task driven. I want to accomplish. I want to get stuff done. You know, I want to sit down and figure out a problem or fix a challenge or whatever the case may be. I don't naturally think, hey, I want to spend time investing in people. 
And so when I started here, that was a big struggle for me, really adapting to the people first side of ministry. And my boss would constantly remind me, you know, you need to spend time with people and sit down and have a conversation. But I would say, man, but all I do during that meeting is just think about how much work I could be getting done right now if I wasn't sitting here listening to this person talk while they're drinking their coffee. Um, and it, 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 it really did take a while to really sink in for me the value of investing in people. But when it sunk in, it's like this light bulb went off that said, you know, it doesn't matter how good your systems are, how great your gear is, how big your budget is, how many campuses you've got. None of that matters if you don't have healthy people to run it, whether they're staff or volunteer it's impossible for any one person to do all of this. But people really aren't going to buy into just doing a thing every week just because I tell them there's a task to do and, you know, make them feel obligated that, you know, you've got to stay late and do this or run this or click this or whatever. Like, people buy into the leader, then they buy into the vision, and then they buy into their role to help fulfill the vision. So good, yeah. Um, and so I really had to work overtime to condition myself to start thinking of people first. And, and, I'm not, and I can't even say by any means that I'm an expert in this or I get it right all the time because I don't. It's very natural to revert back to my tendencies of being very process-minded. But I really had to put the effort into forcing myself to think of people first because if you invest in the right people, then it will be just that much easier to accomplish all the processes and the things and the services and the events and the maintenance and whatever because you've got healthy people that are able to do all that. Um, and many, many years ago, I finally had to bite the bullet of delegating because I was I was always horrible at that also. you know. And I, I think there are a lot of us in this industry that struggle in the same way. It's I'm my own worst critic. Nobody's probably better at this than I am. I have higher standards than anybody else. If I tell you what to do, you're probably going to screw it up, and I'm going to have to come behind you and fix it anyway. So I might as well just do it myself the first time and make sure it gets done the right way. That's a mentality that I think a lot of us in the technical world, that our personality lends us to thinking that way. Um, the problem with that is it becomes impossible to do everything yourself. And so I, I realized many years ago that the only way to avoid drowning just in the day-to-day -day of my job was I had no choice but to learn how to delegate because I would never, ever be able to be successful at what I was doing if I wasn't able to hand stuff off. Like stuff doesn't get better when it's one of a 100 things I'm doing. Stuff gets better when I'm able to give it more time and emphasis and energy and really invest in it. Then it's going to grow. And, well, if I've got more on my plate, none, then I'm doing everything a disservice. And so I had to learn how to delegate and teach people and train people how to do it, but also had to learn how to let go of stuff. You know, like I have to be okay with it not always happening at my level and my standards. I have to be able to redefine a different standard of if the job got done – and the audience isn't going to notice or it's not going to affect our practices or how other departments get their vision fulfilled, I've got to be able to let go of the things that are just my personal preference and give people the freedom to kind of skin the cat their own way. And that's where I started learning the difference between delegating and empowering. 
So because I think a lot of people think they're doing a good thing when they delegate. They're saying, I need you to do this task for me. Here are the parameters in which I need it done. And here's, you know, here's the money you can spend, the time it should take, the color it should be, how much it should weigh, blah, blah, blah. And I need it done by this date. Can you go do it and give it back to me? Am I delegating? I mean, sort of. I mean, I'm, I'm getting the task off of my plate and somebody else is doing it. So we're accomplishing the duty. But am I really adding value to this other person during the process? Probably not, because I'm not giving them the freedom to find their own way while they're doing it. So they don't really have any ownership. So that's the difference between the delegation side and the empowerment side. I had to learn that empowerment is, here's the vision. I'm giving you the freedom to fulfill the vision as you, in the best way as you see fit, Given the already existing parameters of our environment here, you're not, you know, we, we have certain departmental standards that we're always going to adhere to. But beyond that, I'm empowering you to use your own talents and gifts and perspective to solve this problem the way you see fit because I'm going to see you as the expert that's able to invest the time in it, and then I want you to come back and tell me how we're going to solve the problem. And I had to learn how to empower people to own it from start to finish, and then I had to be okay with that. You know, I can't come behind you correcting it because it's not right. the way I would want it to be done. Right. I've got to, again, I've got to be able to sit my personal preference aside and say, okay, can that, can, does that get the job done? If it, okay, great, then let's move forward with that. Hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane of our most popular podcast episodes of 2017. For more articles, archives, and resources, visit our website at thechurchmediapodcast.com and be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode going into the new year. On the next Church Media Podcast. Next week on the show, I welcome Jay Cranda from Saddleback Church. We'll be taking an in-depth look at Saddleback's online worship experience strategy. We'll do two weeks with Jay because it's it's just so much content to ingest. It's so good. You're going to really, really enjoy next week's episode of the show. David Michael Hyde is our producer. He's online at davidmichaelhyde.com. Go visit him today. It's a privilege hanging out with you guys each week. Go out there and create some incredible experiences this year. I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Church Media Podcast. Please take a minute today to rate and review the show in iTunes. For show notes, archive episodes, and more free resources for your team, visit thechurchmediapodcast.com. We'll catch you right here next week for another episode of the Church Media Podcast. 